So let's look in our Bibles, though. Let's, uh, what a blessing to be able to come and look in God's Word and to be taught this morning and to be uh, instructed by our God uh, in, in the way that we should live, the way that we should go. This is, uh, this is a real blessing to us, and I'm thankful that it would have been very easy due to the lack of sleep last night or the, it, the inconvenience of this morning for some of you, for you to just say, I've got an excuse not to go, uh, and just and just not. So I I thank you for that. Uh, pray uh, for those who weren't able to make it this morning. Some of whom uh, are sick, uh, and and uh, Jerry Webster is uh, doing our church a service by uh, preaching at First Baptist Wilson uh, for them as they are without a pastor. This is the second week that he's doing that. So uh, remember to pray uh, for him as as he does that and gets to teach. Uh, some of the stuff that uh, he went over in Tanzania that we taught in Africa. It's always nice to have some good, strong biblical sermons to just be able to to hand to the people. So we'll we'll keep praying for the Websters uh, in that. All right. So Second Peter, we're here. We're uh, just a reminder. This is remember and respond. We are to remember what the Lord has done. Chapter one. He has gifted us all these things, everything we need for life and godliness. He has gifted us, uh, his, uh, called us to his own glory and excellence, gifted us uh, his very great promises. And so we respond by making every effort to supplement. And remember that word supplement is that interesting word choreography to get it dancing with, working with, singing with what uh, these things in our life. So with the faith that we have, we then work when that faith, excellence, knowledge, discipline, faithful endurance, godwardness, brotherly affection, love, that list there. Uh, those are supposed to be ours and be increasing. So that's really the first part of Second Peter. Well, now after that uh, excursus on false teachers, now here we are in chapter three uh, and we're remembering and responding to something else. This time, not to what God has done, but what God promises to do. So how do we, how are we supposed to respond to the Lord's promise that he's going to come back and bring a new heavens and a new earth with him? How do you respond? Because listen, there are all sorts of people responding to that, right? People respond to the Lord's going to return in all sorts of various ways. All you got to do is get on Facebook. Uh, and there are a lot of videos telling you why, you know, COVID might be that uh, thing uh, or whatever, uh, just laying out like, here it comes. Uh, and that's not new, right? People have been responding to the Lord's promised return. But how, how does the Bible want us to respond to the Lord's promise to come back? How do we respond to this hope of a new heavens and a new earth. Well, we saw that we respond with holiness and godwardness. Remember those two things, holiness and godwardness, that we're waiting and hastening that day. Hastening not just the the holiness of of that day to come, but, but as we saw last week, hastening our own holiness, right? We're wanting to be found without spot or blemish on the day of the Lord's return. So that's what we saw last week. We got down into verse 14 uh, that we're supposed, this is what we're supposed to be doing. If we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, what do we do? Well, you make sure if you're hastening that day, Lord, I want you to come back. I can't wait till this place is fixed. I can't wait till this world is made right. If you're really wanting everything to be made right, one of the ways you hasten that, one of the ways you wait for that is by hastening your own holiness. 
You can't say, oh, God, I wish this world were fixed. This world is such a problem while you're holding on to your own sin as if it's a treasured possession. So the Lord says, if you really want new heavens and new earth, if you want this world to be fixed, the Lord has changed your heart, given you a heart that can live a holy life because of the holiness of Christ. So you hasten to be holy, hasten to be spotless without blemish, to be blameless. But it's not just that. Well, there, there's more to what we're supposed to do. So let's read the, the we'll look at the second part of verse 14, but we'll read verses 14 through 18 together. And then we'll look at the second. It's gonna, okay, it's going to be two words uh, today. That's we're really getting far. Uh, it's going to be two words today. And I hate to tell you, it's going to be two words, and it's going to take us two weeks. Um, but so buckle up, folks. Uh, we're going to get there. Look at, look at verses 14 through 18. Let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. We'll read this last section of the book of Second Peter. As he's laying out, okay, you're supposed to be waiting. Verse 13, he said, according to this promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So now verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, who see ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are waiting and hastening that day. Father, we yearn for that new heavens and new earth. We, we long for a day when righteousness dwells, when it reigns in this world and in our hearts perfectly. So, Father, as we long for that day, may we hasten it by responding in our own holiness, seeking to be at peace, guarding ourselves uh, against the threats that we know will still be there. That we might grow, Father, as you say, in our grace and knowledge of you. Thank you, Father, that today that's exactly what we'll do. We will grow in our grace and knowledge of you as we look through your word and you teach us through your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's great. One of the ways we do grow in our grace and knowledge is, is exactly what we're doing here. The Bible says that being together to worship the Lord in this is, is part of, of our preparing for that day. But look at verse 14. So that's where we're at. Verse 14, so new heavens and new earth are going to come. We're supposed to be waiting and hastening, living lives of holiness and godwardness. So verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, waiting for that new heavens and the new earth, waiting for all of this to happen, be diligent. There's that word hasten that we've seen over and over. Speed, be quick about, to be found by him without spot or blemish. So, so that's where we got last week. You should hasten to, to, since you're waiting, here's that waiting and hastening again. Since you're waiting for this day, you're also hastening to be found by him without spot or blemish yourself now. So we hastily seek, we're diligent to be found without spot or blemish, but that's not the end of verse 14, is it? He doesn't just say hasten to be found without spot or blemish. What else does he want us to have? Without spot or blemish and at what? At peace. 
We are to be diligent to live spotless lives. And we're also supposed to be diligent to be found at peace. The Christian is supposed to grow or, or, or hasten for God to grow in them. They are to be diligent to work to pursue in their lives peace. That Peter says here, we, we are to work quickly to make sure that when the Lord returns, that he finds us living holy lives, which we're used to knowing that, but also that we would be at peace. Now, the reason we're going to spend two weeks on this is because I think that's probably a little bit surprising to us that that's in the list. Because normally when we talk about the Lord's return, all we talk about is make sure when the Lord returns, you're not doing something you shouldn't be doing. Make sure when the Lord returns that if it's Sunday morning, he catches you with your seat in the pew rather than your head on the pillow, right? As anyone else's pastor used to warn them about that. Uh, Every time I missed church on Sunday, he'd said, well, what would you have thought if the Lord would have come back that day, Chris? Uh, And I was like, I don't know. Uh, So anyway, and some of you are like, I bring my pillow to church. So that way I get both of them. Uh, But we're supposed to, we, we know we're supposed to hasten to be holy. We know that. But often, when we think about the Lord's return, we don't expect God to say, you better make sure that you're at peace. For most of it, it's probably pretty shocking that peace is such an important part of what the Lord wants to find among us. He wants to find a holy church, and He wants to find a church that is at peace peace, that you need to hasten, that we need to be diligent, that we need to pursue peace as the people of God. But what you find when you look in scripture is that we should not have been surprised by God saying, hey, it is very important for peace to be reigning in my people individually and as a body. And and, and the reason we probably don't expect peace to be in this list is a lot of churches aren't at peace. And we've grown up in churches where peace, true biblical peace was not pursued, right? The peace we wanted in church was let's just do whatever so that the mean people don't leave, right? So what do we have to do? And that's not peace, right? That's, that's, that's what North and South Korea have, Right? Many churches are just North and South Korea where we've established a DMZ. Here's the areas neither side talks about, right? Uh, and as long as no one brings up this area that I like this way and they like that way, as long as no one brings that up, then no shots are fired and there's peace. And no one goes to Korea and goes, man, this is a great peace. This is, this is, man, I tell you what, Kim Jong-un should get the Nobel Peace Prize because uh, he hasn't pushed the button on the nukes yet. What a great thing. Uh, but many churches, that's all we, we, we just have a ceasefire instead of peace. And so I think because peace is so often not pursued in the church, that we, we are surprised that it's in here in this list. But we're going to see that according to the Bible, peace is one of the most precious things and the most uh, important things that God says he wants to see in his church body and in his church people. That people who are never at peace are people who are in a constant state of problem themselves. And we're going to see that as churches, we need to diligently pursue peace in our body, and in our uh, own hearts. So, 
I said it shouldn't be surprising to see peace here. And here's one of the reasons it shouldn't be surprising. In the Bible, over and over, you see holiness and peace paired together. In descriptions of what the church should be or what Christianity should be, it is very common for us to see holiness and peace as what needs to be in the church and in God's people. They need to be a holy people and they need to be a people at peace, that those two are not separated, but commonly united in scripture. Let's take, let's just look at a few examples. Take, for example, first Peter, right? We've already seen this first Peter chapter three, verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good, right? There's holiness. But then what's the next thing? Let him seek what? Peace and pursue it. So what should we do as believers? You should turn away from evil, separate yourselves from evil. Is that holiness and godliness sort of pairing? You should separate yourself from evil. And then as you turn from evil, what do you turn to? What are you supposed to pursue? What 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 does he say to pursue? Pursue peace. Turn away from evil toward the good. Seek peace and pursue it. How about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14? Strive for peace with everyone. And for what? And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The Christian is to strive for what? Two things. Is the Christian just supposed to strive for holiness? No. The Christian is to strive for peace and for Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, peace and holiness combined in these verses. Very common pairing. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 22. So flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with those who call on the name, uh, or call on the Lord from a pure heart. I think we're used to seeing the Christian life as a pursuit of righteousness or pursue faith or pursue love. At least when I was growing up, and and this may be you guys, your your pastors, remember, really stressed you the importance of pursuing peace. But when I was growing up and we were being taught about our holification or our sanctification, whatever, it was all, there were often stresses on make sure that you're a person of faith. Make sure that you're growing your love. Make sure that you're growing your righteousness. Very rarely was it stressed to me the importance of pursuing peace. That those who've been given, as he says, a pure heart from the Lord are a people who pursue peace. Pursue these things along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That if the Lord's given you a pure heart, one of the marks of that purity is a pursuit of peace. James 3.18, I think one of the more interesting passages. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, righteousness paired with with peace. And, and, And what's interesting about this is normally, I think we just see peace as a byproduct of righteousness. We think that if, if we live right, that if the church will live holy lives, that what just happens is peace. That if we'll be, that the reason there's not peace is we're just not being, not being holy. So the answer to getting peace is just to pursue holiness. And so peace in is really not something we pursue. It's more something that happens when we pursue the Lord. But here, it's actually the other way around. 
Here it's that when we make peace, when we sow peace, that we harvest righteousness. Normally we see righteousness as the seed and the result, the harvest as peace. If you live a holy life, then peace will happen in the church. Here he says, if you want righteousness, you better be sowing, you better be making peace. So what brings righteousness? Sowing peace. And again, this is very similar to what we've seen in many other texts in Scripture. You cannot have peace without righteousness, and you cannot have righteousness without peace. You cannot have one without the other. If holiness is ignored, though, in churches, at least we know we're supposed to be pursuing it. I think when peace is ignored in churches, it's because we don't realize just how important it is. We don't think that peace is something we're supposed to pursue. We think that peace is just something that happens. That peace is just something that occurs when the church is doing right. That, look, we're at peace, so that means we're doing right. When the, when the Bible says, look, you're supposed to be sowing. You're supposed to be making peace. And then you as a church will harvest righteousness. And so we don't hear a lot of calls from the church for peace. Or when we do, what do we hear? Peace has been so abused in our culture and in the church that you either hear people calling for a peace that is not a biblical version of peace. It's just that, like we talked about, just nobody fight and saying, well, that's peace. Or we we get the other side, which just quotes, you know, Ezekiel and Jeremiah that says, you say peace, peace when there is no peace. Uh, And so then you get neither side actually pursuing biblical peace. One side isn't wanting to pursue biblical peace because they're not really wanting to do what the Bible says. And the other side is sort of afraid of pursuing peace because that seems like what liberal Christians do. And so if anyone came up and said, hey, we need to pursue peace, they'd automatically go, We're going to see that the Bible is clear that peace is something that as a church and as a Christian, you need to be sowing in your life. You need to be able to look at your life and say, I am sowing seeds of peace in my life. I am pursuing peace. And if I want to harvest righteousness, I mean, we're just going to quote James here. If I'm going to harvest righteousness in my life, and it comes when I sow peace, when I make peace. So it is surprising to us that uh, peace is such a big part uh, of the, the Bible, that it's so central. But it shouldn't surprise us. Uh, not only do we see peace and holiness often paired, so we can go, okay, so it's obviously important. It, he puts it on par with being holy, and I know that I should be holy. I know that that's important. Peter's talked about that, right? Be holy for I am holy. So I know that, but, but, but peace is also important. We say, yeah, one of, the, one of the reasons that it shouldn't surprise us that peace, well, I mean, for one, the word peace is used over 300 times in the Bible. The words for peace used over 300 times, calling for peace, describing peace. But with that, one of the reasons it shouldn't surprise us is because peace is a big part of who God is. To pursue peace is to pursue to be like God. It is to, in the same way that Peter said you should be holy because he is holy, we should seek peace because God is peace. For example, notice just these few passages 
where peace is going to be attached to the personhood of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 calls God the God of peace. Romans 15, 33, He is the God of peace. Romans 16, 20, He is the God of peace. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, He is the God of love and peace. Philippians 4, 9, He is the God of peace. Hebrews 13, 20, He is the God of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, For God is not a God of instability, but of peace. 2 Thessalonians even attaches it to Christ saying, He is the Lord of peace. So like I said, if, if Peter comes and says, You should be holy because God is holy, it shouldn't surprise us here that, that when the Lord returns, we should make sure we're found by Him spotless and without blemish. But Peter also knows what? What he said before in 1 Peter and what they've read throughout the scripture, which is that what? They should be found at peace because God is the God of peace. Which is why we saw Peter so quickly decry, and and other scripture, decry those who destroy the peace of the church. This is why the Lord hates what? Those who sow discord among the brethren. Why? Because God is the God of peace. Peace. This is why God hates us. Remember where we saw that the word heresy uh, back in chapter 2 is just a Greek word that we don't translate. But it's a word that means to destroy. It's something that means to, to break up. God guards the peace of his people as fervently as he guards their holiness. So God is a God of peace. We should long to be found at peace because we should want to be like God. If we're his children, it's expected that we would look like him. Just as if God is holy, it's expected that we would be holy. If God is the God of peace, it is expected that we would be at peace as well. So so the Bible is clear. The Christian life is a life that is supposed to be characterized by peace. What two things, of all two things, should we be pursuing uh, as the new heavens and new earth come? He says you should pursue to be spotless and blameless and you should pursue to be at peace. Now, the reason that he says those two things, if you're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, like he said in verse 13. So verse 14, you're waiting for these things, be spotless and be at peace. One of the reasons is because that kingdom is going to be a place without spot and blemish, but also because in describing the kingdom of God, it is described as a place of what? peace. So just as you and I are supposed to pursue holiness and righteousness because the new heavens and the new earth will be a place of holiness and righteousness, you and I must pursue peace because that kingdom to come is a kingdom of what? Peace. So take, for example, Psalm chapter 72. In describing the king that's going to come, right? In describing this forever king that is going to come for the people, Psalm 72 says this about his kingdom. Psalm 72, verse 7. In his days, may the righteous flourish. There, here, this, is, this is a verse I could have put where righteousness and peace are paired together, but it was coming again later, so I didn't put it in there because you're going to get it anyway. Uh, in the days, may righteousness flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. So Psalm 72, this forever king, the one who's going to reign, who's going to reign until the moon is gone, is one who causes righteousness and peace to flourish and abound. Now, let this verse be sitting in your head when you get to Revelation 21. Because what does Revelation 21 say about the kingdom of the Lamb? Revelation 21, verses 23 through 24. And the city... 
of this king, this kingdom to come, this new heavens and the new earth. That's just what's happened in Revelation 21. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So the the Lamb is the king who is going to reign in a kingdom of righteousness and peace, right? Notice the peace. What happens? The, the, the nations are going to walk into it. The kings of earth are going to bring their glory to it, not to conquer it. And in fact, do they ever have to shut their gates? No, you don't have to shut your gates at night. You remember back in the good old days when you didn't have to shut your gates at night to the city? Remember that? Uh, we still talk about that, right? What is a place of peace when we're like, oh, we don't even lock our doors at night. Uh, there's, there, we're so not afraid. Well, here it says, look, there will be a time when you don't even have to shut your gates at night. There will be no night there. This is a world that, as Psalm 72 says, needs no moon. Because the king, he is the lamp of the glory of God. How about Romans 14, 17 through 18? For the kingdom of God, so how are you going to describe the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness, and here's another verse, and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Some of you are drawing lines, and you're like, I wish you would have put that in that previous section uh, about holiness and, and, and peace. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. What typifies the kingdom of God, this kingdom that we're, we're waiting for? He says not... What typifies the kingdom of God, what describes the kingdom of God, it's not what you can eat or not eat or what you can drink or not drink. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. But about righteousness and joy and what? Peace. That's what typifies the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a matter of those other things, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. It is the life, he says, if you look at verse 18, it is the life that possesses these things that makes one acceptable to God. It is whoever thus serves Christ. Whoever serves Christ, what? Not in what you eat or don't eat or what you drink or don't drink. That's not what makes you acceptable to Christ. It's a heart. It is, as we, is, as we saw earlier, it is that pure heart, as, he, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.22, it is that pure heart that is filled with what? filled with righteousness, filled with joy, and filled with peace that make one acceptable to the Lord. So if, you, if I were to say, hey, I know you don't have any righteousness in your life, but trust me, you're still acceptable to the Lord, you'd be like, what are you talking about? You can't say, you know, I know you live a totally unholy life. Uh, I know you just love to, you know, douse yourself in sin, but I'm sure things between you and God are fine. Uh, you would say, that's crazy. If I said, I know that you're very unhappy, uh, you have absolutely no joy, but I'm sure everything is okay between you and God. We would say that's ridiculous. Yet this verse says the same thing about peace. That what, what shows that we have been changed by the Spirit, notice that it said that in, in uh, verse 17, is you will have a heart of righteousness, yes. You'll have a heart of joy, yes. But also have a heart of what? Peace. That's what the heart looks like that is acceptable to God. Holiness and peace have actually been a part of the call for God's people from the beginning. I mentioned 1 Peter 3.11. Uh, 
But Psalm 34, 14, turn away from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. That that's what life in the kingdom is like. That's what, that's what we are supposed to be pursuing. And we pursue peace because when we pursue peace, we're pursuing the gospel. That the gospel is a gospel of peace. That when Christ comes, his gospel that he brings is a gospel of peace. He is bringing what is part of the good news that he is bringing peace. In fact, Ephesians 6.15 calls the gospel the gospel of peace. Peace is so central to the gospel that Paul can call it the gospel of peace. Peace. Did you know that that gospel, that is the only virtue tied to the name of the gospel. Not the gospel of anything. It's not called the gospel of love. It's not called the gospel of joy. It's not even called the gospel of holiness. The only virtue, it is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is called the gospel of God. It is called the gospel of your salvation. But the only virtue attached to it is the gospel of peace. That's how important peace is to even understanding what the gospel is doing. And it always has been. Paul's not coming up with that in Ephesians when he says, look, this is the gospel of peace. He's not saying anything that people are going, whoa, I didn't didn't realize peace was so central to what Jesus was doing. You know why? Because they'd heard about his birth. What was proclaimed at the birth of Christ? Let's go before the birth of Christ. What happens uh, at the birth of, of John the Baptist? or the proclamation of what's going to happen with John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, verse 76 through 79. Look at how it describes what Jesus is going to do when he comes. And you, child, this is talking about John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. So John the Baptist is going to go and make things ready for the Most High, for the Lord to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into what? Into the way of peace. What do we see there? What, what things are described there? Starting uh, in verse 77, we see salvation. We see the forgiveness of sins. We see mercy. We see light to those who sit in darkness. Always we would typically describe what is happening in the gospel. But what else is added to that list? Salvation, forgiveness, mercy, light, and what else? The way of peace. What is the gospel? It is the way of peace. And, and, and what do the angels say? What do the angels sing in Luke chapter 2? When they're there proclaiming glory to God. What do they say? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. What? Peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God. So glory to the Lord. And for us, what do we get? What's their prize, Bob? What do we get? Peace. Peace. In fact, what Christ was called to do, we heard about over 500 years before he was ever born. So yeah, there it says when he's born, he's going to bring peace. But we've known that for hundreds of years before Christ came. 
Remember that passage in Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What else? Prince of Peace. That peace is absolutely integral to what Christ came to do. Did he come to work salvation for his people? Yes. Did he come to bring the mercy of God? Yes. Did he come to bring forgiveness? Yes. Did he come to bring light to those who sit in the darkness? Yes. Did he come to bring peace? Yes. Peace with God, peace with one another. Peace that is going to come through the paradoxical, what does Jesus himself say? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, right? We're going to talk about how those two work together. Uh, how the Prince of Peace comes and says, I did not come to bring peace. And he's like, well, you should have talked to Isaiah about that. Uh, right? How can the one who, who, who's bringing this peace can call us to hate our father and mother, our brothers and sisters, hate our, even our own lives? Because in doing that is how we achieve actual, genuine peace. Not as the world gives, right? As Jesus says, not as the world gives, but as he gives. Peace is an integral part of Christ's work and it's therefore an integral part of the Christian life. So in describing the Christian life, the Bible says, look, one of the things that needs to be in the life of a Christian is peace. Now, we've seen some of this already, but it's made even more explicit that peaceful living is gospel living. That if you want to live the gospel, one of the things that needs to be in your life is peace. And that makes sense if Christ can't. So if if if. If God is holy, and we sh- then we should be holy. If God is the God of peace, then we should be a people of peace. If Christ came to bring peace, then you would expect Christians to be people of peace. And we see the Bible expecting that. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. What are the fruits of the Spirit? But the fruits of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and then what? Peace. That one of the things that grows in the hearts of believers because of the Spirit, which is the exact same thing that we already saw in Romans chapter 14, when he says righteousness, peace, and joy in the Spirit, the exact same thing is said by Paul in Galatians 5 to say, hey, the fruit of the Spirit, if you've got the Holy Spirit in your life, you know what you have? Love. You know what you have? Joy. You know what grows? Peace. Peace. Philippians chapter 4 verse 7 Describing the Christian's life says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How does God guard our hearts and our minds? What's one of the things that guards us? Peace. What's one of the things that helps us live a holy life, that helps us live a righteous life? Peace. That helps us be okay with whatever is going on in our life. It is that peace. And if we're okay, if this is why it says godliness with contentment is great gain. If we are at peace with whatever happens, that peace will indeed surpass all understanding to the outside world and even understanding to yourself. You're like, look at what all is going on. And yet I am fine. I am fine. Yes, I want 2021 to be here tomorrow, but I'm okay right now. I'm just glad we skipped the murder hornets, right? Why can why sh- what should epitomize the life of a Christian? 
one of the things that guards us is the peace that God has given us, which is why just as your life is not going to be fine in Christ if you are not taking on holiness like you're supposed to, and if you're living an unholy life, you're not going to be happy as a Christian. If God has given us peace and we are rejecting that peace that he by the spirit works in our hearts, do you think we'll be happy? No. If we allow ourselves to be anxious, are we happy? No. If we allow ourselves to be at war with other believers, are we going to be happy? No. God guards us with peace and he expects peace to be in the hearts of his people. In fact, he says it will be. But even that is not a new idea. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 says this, you keep him. In perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So this isn't new. Again, none of this is, is new. Isaiah is telling us all the way back then. You, God, keep the people who trust in you, those who trust in you, you keep them when their mind is stayed on you and not on themselves and not on this world. When they're meditating on you and thinking about you, you keep them in what? Not just peace. But what type of peace? Perfect peace. Peace was one of the gifts of the Spirit for God's people from the beginning. God's children have been a people of peace, internally and externally. In fact, it's the lost world that is characterized by a lack of peace. One of the things that... that, that that epitomizes the world that doesn't know Christ is that they have no peace. That The bumper sticker is right, right? No Christ, no peace. No Christ, no peace. Uh, right? Oh, oh, I see what you did there. Those are called homophones. I learned that in school. Uh, and, but what, are we, what is true? Th- 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 those are right. Without Christ, there is no peace. And if you do know Christ... You do know peace. Take for, take, take, for example, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22. And this phrase is repeated a couple of times in Isaiah, uh, and the idea is found throughout Scripture. But what does it say? Just very clearly, there is no peace, says the Lord, for whom? For the wicked. No. So he keeps those. What has Isaiah already told us in Isaiah 26? That he keeps those in perfect peace, whose mind is set on him, who trusts on him. But for the wicked, there is no what? No peace for the wicked. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, that, that passage where we see like there's no one good, no, not one, no one who seeks after God. They've all turned aside together. They've become unprofitable. All those things in describing their life, starting in verse 13 of Romans chapter 3, look at what it says about them. Describing, so Romans 3 is describing how all of the world is ungodly. And look at part of the description of what their life looks like. So that gives us an insight into their heart. But look at their life. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. What describes the life of someone who is in rebellion to God, who doesn't know the Lord? Those are the people who do not know the way of peace. And guess who Paul is quoting there in Romans? He's quoting Isaiah. 
He's quoting the Old Testament. These are all things that God has already said to be true. So their throats are deaf. They use their tongues to tear each other up. They might as well have the venom of snakes on their lips. Their mouth, what do they speak? They speak only curses and bitterness. Their feet, well, they run to kill each other, swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In other words, all the things that are not peace. That's why peace isn't just a promise in Scripture for the Christian. Peace is commanded to the Christian. I mean, that's what he's telling us to do now. Be hasten to be found uh, spotless and without blemish and at peace. You better, you better be working to make sure peace is in your life. But look, for example, at Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Christian, what do you need to let rule in your hearts? The peace of Christ to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So the Christian is called by God to what? What has God called you to? He says you need to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts because this is church what you were called to. You were called to be a people who let the rule of Christ, who let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's what you're supposed to be. Which is why it's so crazy that it's become acceptable for churches to be places of conflict rather than peace. And people want to say it's because they've given up holiness. And I say, yeah, that's probably part of it. But the other part is they've given up seeing peace as a necessary part of what you must pursue as the people of God. It's not just a byproduct of what either happens or doesn't happen. It's what we must pursue. And so he says, let peace rule. Let it rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your Hearts. We are called to pursue that peace. What a needed verse for the church and what a needed verse for some of our lives individually because some of us are really peaceful with others, but the conflict is just raging in our own hearts. In our hearts, we are a very anxious person. The peace of God, the peace of Christ is not ruling in our hearts. We are not pursuing it. We have allowed ourselves to just believe that I'm just an anxious person or I'm just a, this type of person. And instead of saying, I'm going to let the peace of Christ rule. And, and notice it says, let it, right? And say, the peace of Christ is there. What we're doing as believers, because what have we seen? The spirit works these in the hearts of his people. So if, if peace is not ruling in our hearts, it's because we're not wanting it to. And you may I really, really want it to. Well, the Bible says if it's not and you're a believer, it's because you're choosing not to let it rule in your heart. It's because you're rebelling against it. Not because it's not there. Not just because you have a certain proclivity that, that I'm just a this type of Christian. No, the peace of God is not ruling in your hearts. It's probably because you're not letting it. You need to repent and run to the Lord for the peace that he has given us. And might he, you need to, what did, what did, uh, what, what did it say we need to do? We need to, James say, what, we need to sow that peace. We need to make that peace and the harvest of righteousness will come with it. So some of us, you know, it's like we need to, we need to make sure that as a church that we're pursuing peace. And some of you as individuals need to pursue peace in, in your heart. You, you've taken on 
uh, allowed yourself to believe that you just have an anxious heart that's just what, what you are. You're just, a, you're just, or maybe it's not anxiety, maybe, maybe it's complaining, right? You're just a complaining heart. That's another way to not be at peace. I'm just a grumbler and complainer. Like you literally quoted what the Bible says you cannot be. Uh, and uh, it makes it easy when someone says that. And I go, well, let's just look at this verse. Um, so I love when the Lord controls, controls our speech even in that way. So the Bible says we are commanded to pursue peace. So, so take, for example, in the church, that that's what our hearts are supposed to do. If someone has wronged you, the Bible commands you. If a brother's wronged you, you make peace with them quickly. Right? You don't just let it go. You don't just go, ah, I'm sure everything's going to end up being fine. Right? Uh, I mean, if someone has sinned against you, I mean, think of, think of Matthew chapter 18. Uh, you go to them, you say, hey, look, this is how you've wronged me, and you deal with it. And sometimes in our definition of peace, we think peace is just not bringing that up. And that's, that's not exactly what the Lord says to do. We're going to see more of this next week as we look at how to pursue peace. But the one thing we need to see is that we are commanded to do it and to do it quickly. Because what some of us will do right now is we'll say, oh, I am anxious and God, I pray you would really work that out someday. And what has Peter told us here? We need to hasten to be at peace. We need to work. Look, if you struggle with anxiety or you struggle because you're a complainer when no one's around or maybe just when your friends are around or your your text messages are around uh, or a listening ear on Facebook or whatever. Uh, or maybe you're someone who, who, who causes trouble in the church. You just are always mad at others. And there's always a reason that someone has done something wrong in this person. And, you know, and you're just, you're just not at peace with the, the body. And what do you need to do is you need to pursue that quickly. If someone's wronged you, you pursue it. And if you've wronged someone else, you pursue to make peace quickly. Now take, for example, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 26. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid every last penny. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you need to pursue peace. Uh, or you'll end up paying every penny of consequences. And you've seen that in churches. Churches that have delayed pursuing peace are churches that have reaped every penny of the consequence of that. By not pursuing peace, you know what never came? Peace. By pursuing peace their way, saying, ah, oh, let's, just, let's just pretend this will go away. And not actively pursuing to have peace rule in the hearts of the people. You know what never came? Peace. And you know what often did come? An explosion. Church splits, fractures, all the things that it, by not pursuing the Bible's definition of peace and what the Bible tells us to do, all the things that ended up causing not peace, but war, conflict. Same thing is true in our hearts. So Jesus is calling us to be a people of peace and to be it quickly. Whether you're the victim or the perpetrator, you need to be pursuing peace and you need to not Wait, I mean, when, you, when you're thinking about what the picture should be, it should be like these two people are like, let's say, let's take Matthew 5 and they're at the altar. The one at the altar should be running to meet the one that he's wronged and the one that's been wronged should be running to meet that guy and they should meet in the middle and be like, where are you going? I was going to make peace. Me too. This is awesome. That's what should be happening. The one wronged should be running to make peace with the one who's wronged him and the one who wronged him should be running to fix the, the guy he wronged. 
They should be meeting somewhere, I don't know, well, not in the court of the Gentiles, right? Outside, give the court of the Gentiles to the Gentiles. Uh, go outside and, and make peace and then come back. But there, there, should be a, there should be a mutual pursuit of peace in the body of Christ. Where no one is okay with wrong and conflict for a lack of peace in, in the body. So just as, an, as peace is an integral part of God's character, it must be an integral part of God's children. So if we are waiting or hastening a, a, a world of peace, a kingdom of peace, um, then we must be hastening in our lives to pursue diligently, to pursue speedily peace in our own lives. All of this is just to set us up for how we do this. How do we do this? You know, what does it look like to pursue peace? Because the Bible is also going to give us instructions in that. But we have to know how important peace is. I think if we look at all these verses, no one can look at these verses and go, I'm not sure if peace is a big deal. And just as no one would look at these and go, I'm not sure that holiness is a big deal for the church. None of us would look at this and say, I'm not sure that peace is important to God. Peace is very important to God because peace is part of who he is. It's part of who his people must be. I mean, Christians, we serve a God of peace. I mean, look at what we've seen. We serve a God of peace who is bringing a kingdom of, pre, of peace through the prince of peace who makes a people of peace who are supposed to themselves pursue peace. If you wanted to make it one paragraph, you're like, you could have just given us that paragraph. It's been a whole lot shorter. If you want one paragraph to sum up what God has laid out for us, the God of peace bringing a kingdom of peace from the prince of peace and is making a people of peace who are pursuing peace themselves must we be spotless yes must we labor for holiness yes but we must also pursue peace with all speed we're called to labor just as hard for peace as we're called to labor for holiness or righteousness and i think we tend to um we tend to focus more on uh, laboring for holiness or righteousness is more important. If we separate those two things, if you can pursue holiness and not pursue peace, or you can pursue peace and not pursue holiness, if we're separating those things, it's, if, if we're putting one on a higher pedestal than the other, it's not because the Bible tells us to. Because those things are paired over and over as we saw in Scripture. That both are to be pursued by God's people. So Christians, Christ is returning. His kingdom is advancing. What must we do to prepare for that great day? We must be holy. We must be spotless. We must be blameless. And we must be at peace. When Christ returns, may he find both of those things in our lives and in our church. Let's pray.